0: Join the only Roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. In this episode, we have the quintet of Christy Grant Hart and Karen Moore as guests, Jonathan Armstrong, Matt Kelly, and Tom Fox. We take up largely the Albemarle FCPA enforcement action, but Mr. Armstrong gives us some thoughts on CEO risk and how companies need to respond when an allegation is made. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of Everything Compliance. We are live today, and we have special guest, Karen Moore. So, Karen, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for joining our happy gang at Everything Compliance. Such a pleasure. We're going to mostly talk about the Albemarle FCPA enforcement action today, but, Mr. So, we're going to start with Mr. Armstrong.
3: Thanks very much, Tom. I'm still in Chicago after a, I think, successful SCCE conference. And I'm going to talk about uh, uh, some news that was just breaking when we did our panel. So we did our panel on CEO bad behavior. And I know it's something I've banged on a bit recently on this podcast about CEO risk. So is your CEO one of your biggest risks? Should your CEO be on the risk register for your corporation? I think there's also a challenge for compliance officers, particularly that a lot of programs are are set up to push compliance down the organization, but not so well set up to push compliance up the organization. And I've certainly had cases where management have thought that they're exempt from compliance initiatives, even things as simple as locking their mobile devices and having security on those and this is another case that's uh, somewhat similar as the then as the father of then teenage daughters i used to spend a lot of my u.s trips in uh, abercrombians uncomfortable uh, about some of those stores i couldn't quite pin my finger on why obviously i welcomed the constant playing of rick astley music at their store in fifth avenue I liked the design uh, stag copied bits of it, but I was always a bit uncomfortable about the meters and greeters. Now, since this is a family podcast, I'll show you the details. But in the New York Hollister store, for example, the bikini-clad girls were just at the wrong angle on the stairs for it to be decent, and I always thought that the male greeters were somewhat I don't know, over-enthusiastic, certainly, to British tastes. And it seems that others have had those concerns as well. Mary Shirley and Chris Robidoux and I gave a sort of list of CEOs that seem to have behaved badly. And I think to that list, we can now add Mike Jeffries. So the story is somewhat curious. He, it seems, isn't even certain of his own date of birth he was either born in 1944 or 1945 he's married and he has one son he was previously known obviously for turning a f from old school clothier to a hip place where middle-aged men were directed to visit by their teenage daughters and he was also known for his at times staggering levels of compensation, $25 million one year, $48 million another year. He stepped down in 2014, in part because it seemed that the magic that he'd done with the brand had faded, and in part because there were concerns about his relationship with Matthew Smith. Matthew Smith is variously described as Mike Jeffries' mentor, his business associate, and his friend. But it seemed that Smith and Jeffries lived together. And at times, Jeffreys has described himself as a gay man. And the allegations seem to concern, uh, in particular, a number of parties, both at the house that they shared in New York and in London, Paris, Venice, and Marrakesh. Now, as a side note, I think it's always hard to justify company events in Marrakesh, particularly when it seems it was largely male gatherings. And the allegations concern uh, a 12 men, depending on which version you read, who were allegedly sex trafficked to uh morocco for uh, these parties and to other places they were it seems that a number of them were auditioned for the party by an intermediary known to Jeffries and to smith strikingly a man without a nose and this man would then require them or ask them to perform sex acts he'd give them 500 pounds in cash and then tell them that they'd got the gig. There are also other disturbing allegations of forced drug use and some of the men being shaved because apparently Smith allegedly had an aversion to male body hair. And what Jeffrey said, Jeffrey's lawyer has been in touch with the BBC who have worked I think for about three years on this investigation. And effectively, all he said is that Mr. Jeffries is 79, he's retired, he has chosen not to comment on media reports in the past, and he does not plan on doing so now. So, hardly a denial. And clearly, if the allegations are true, another case of CEOs behaving badly and exposing the corporation to risk. Now, as Many of my wife's a magistrate and deals with criminal cases. I think the criminal courts in the UK have seen a big rise in allegations of sexual misbehaviour that are somewhat historic after figures in public life have been exposed. And I think that might be a pattern of this case in particular. Perhaps the victims are emboldened to come forward after people like Harvey Weinstein have. Receive justice for what on their face seem to be similar acts. But I think the challenge for compliance officers is obviously these are historic events, but that doesn't mean necessarily that you can forget them. It's likely that employees who are involved in these events are still with the corporation. The allegations include the fact that ANF employees in ANF uniforms held people down and shaved them etc etc there is in my mind at least a prima facie case for saying that a have to investigate these are difficult investigations to do uh, i know i've done one in not in terms of same-sex behavior but in terms of egregious behavior by a former ceo picking uh, girls at the holiday party for various acts As I say, they're very challenging investigations to do, particularly when you're asking people to volunteer events that took place some time ago and which they might have put to the back of their mind. But they're necessary, and the victims that we had in our investigation thanked us for doing it and felt that it was a sign that the corporation regretted the past, that it was trying to look after them, and that it moved on. In the investigation that I did, the individual's continuing remuneration was cancelled. I know you're going to talk about the cancellation options, etc. in future. But these aren't pointless investigations, even if they're for events five or six or ten years ago. The corporation has to heal. And whether these allegations are true or not, they need to be investigated however challenging that might
1: be. Jonathan, I'm going to start off with perhaps where you started with the risk and CEO risk. Uh, We have friends who perform deep dive, deep level due diligence on individuals, and they advocate you really have to do that when you move to the senior executive level because the risk to the corporation can be so great. And- in most of the situations that I've seen that have become public, there was a clear pattern of behavior. Somebody just didn't wake up one day and decide to become a serial harasser or serial abuser. They had done so at multiple corporations, whether it was incredibly attractive, incredibly buxom executive assistants, whether it was uh, something else, whether it was a series of promotions of former paramours. Did a&F, or do you have any sense of whether there was any look or deep dive due diligence uh, before he became CEO, or did this sort of appear on ANF's radar uh, without them performing a requisite amount of due diligence?
3: I'm, I'm not sure it did. I, I guess if you had have done superficial due diligence, checking Wikipedia, et cetera, you'd have found a married man with a son. Whether that causes you to stop investigating, I don't. But one of the other features of this case, as you say, due diligence is key for individuals who are going to be in such a prominent position. I'd suggest, particularly, and um, I'm conscious of Christie's past, so I'm treading carefully. But I suspect, particularly in the entertainment industry, particularly in fashion, particularly in retail, where you have often CEOs that are more creative in nature. I suspect sometimes creative equals living near the edge equals perhaps heightened due diligence. But the other staggering feature of this, I think, is the fact that it seems that nobody spoke up at the time. Corporate assets were being used for this. This is a man who was Obviously, wealthy beyond means. You don't take away $48 million from a business beyond Europas, And at the same time, the allegations seem to involve use of the corporate jet for some of these parties, use of people who are on the ANF payroll nice. to, uh, to host them. And you, you've got to think if you're a and f that not only have you failed in your due diligence and your onboarding of uh, this individual possibly of people close to him as well what was smith's role in the organization why was he party to a lot of the corporations diligence etc and but then the the critical thing is why did nobody speak up? Why were there hundreds, if not thousands, of bystanders in the corporation who thought all of this was okay?
1: Let me first disabuse your notion that it's uh, limited to Creative Industries as the both CEO of British Petroleum and the CEO of the British Petroleum American Business Unit both resigned within the past month for improper liaisons within the organization and lying to board investigators about it. Unfortunately, it's not limited to creatives. But Christy, you had a question or a comment.
0: Yeah, just first of all, making sure you can all hear me. All set with that? Yep. Perfection. Yeah, so I just wanted to say Netflix did an absolutely fabulous documentary I don't know if any of you saw on Abercrombie & Fitch and the culture issues that it had over time. Can you... All set, and it, it was a really fascinating thing because it looked at all of not just the sex scandal piece with the models, but also things like not allowing women with hair with uh, hairdressers to come to work and not being not allowing them. That went to the Supreme Court, uh, so that's a fascinating thing to have happened they went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court said no, she's allowed to wear her hijab. Um, if you have them literally willing to go to the Supreme Court for things like that, and to have a corporate uh, policy to not hire people who aren't beautiful to work in the store. You have issues, right? And so it actually isn't surprising that we suddenly have this huge issue because they had so many cultural issues with respect to beauty and not hiring people based on what they could do, but how they looked. Even in the stores, at the store level at the mall, this was pervasive 100%. And if you know that's the culture, maybe just even starting at the store, going into corporate, that's going to be how you behave.
2: Matt, over to you. I just wanted to add a quick, this is a sorry statement about the world state of affairs, but Jonathan, as good as your discussion here is, this is not even the only story of a CEO who had been grooming young male job applicants or candidates for illicit sexual and improper sexual behavior. It's not the only one this week, because I was just writing up earlier today about the Japanese talent agency Johnny and Associates, which is currently grappling with its founder, whose name is Johnny, who spent many years grooming young male J-pop stars for inappropriate sexual conduct with them. And they are cleaning this mess up. They've just hired a new chief compliance officer. But I just wanted to say, Jonathan, I really liked how you and Mary Shirley and Christine Rubidoux were talking about CEO as a compliance risk? And should they be on your risk register? I would almost by definition, say yes. Because every single thing that you might not want to have an employee do then say, and by the way, it's the CEO, that makes it 100 times worse. I don't know what the proper office diplomacy would be to push compliance up the organization. But I think that's an excellent point to raise and an excellent way to frame it.
3: Thanks, Bob.
1: We're going to change topics to perhaps something a little more mundane, but equally interesting to you compliance geeks out there, and that's the Albemarle FCPA Enforcement Action. We're going to take a little bit of a deep dive into it, and we're going to start with Matt. Hope can hopefully provide us a overview. So over to you, Mr. Kelly.
2: Sure. So let me see if I can do this succinctly, which is not easy because this is a big and complicated case, but Albemarle is a chemicals company. And one part of their business is that they make chemicals for oil that you can put into an oil refinery to improve the refinery's operations, which means it sells to oil companies such as state owned oil companies. Issue number one, people can see where this is going. And according to the settlement announced by the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice, they had engaged in a scheme from roughly 2009 in india vietnam and indonesia those are the three countries in question where albemarle was using intermediaries to sell chemicals to state-owned oil companies in those countries and of course the intermediaries were just cutouts to be able to funnel bribes to the government officials at those state-owned oil companies to that extent this is kind of the same old we have heard that a lot Uh, one Particular detail I thought was pretty funny is that the fixer, who I think was based out of Singapore or Vietnam, but this was the fixer helping to arrange business with the Vietnam oil company was specifically told that when referring to the government official, who ultimately would receive the bribes, you had to refer to him as his friend, quote unquote, and that was you had to refer, use the quotes not just say my friend in Vietnam, but my friend in Vietnam, in quotes, in all email communications. So hadn't seen that happen before. But we have a couple of interesting points here that I'm sure Karen and Christy and Tom, you guys can all explore as well. One thing that I thought was interesting is we have a good glimpse of what reasonably prompt disclosure is in the eyes of the Justice Department, and more specifically, what is not reasonably prompt, because Alba knew about these allegations and sat on them for 16 months before disclosing the issue to the Justice Department, the DOJ says no, that is not reasonably prompt, 16 months. On the other hand, they did win credit for withholding bonuses totaling $760,000 during the course of their internal investigation. So that led to a fine reduction. That's a positive. Yet again, on the other hand, though, the Securities and Exchange Commission called out, quote, repeated and glaring bribery-related red flags. And next time we're doing this podcast, I'm going to find a red flag to wave it from now on. But the internal audits that Albemarle did in 2013, 2015, 2016, they had identified multiple gaps in Albemarle's internal controls that were never remediated in a timely fashion. So there were some issues there, but ping-ponging back again, what was some of the good news? So the DOJ did outline a lot of remediating factors and remedial improvements that Albemarle had done to lift up its standing in the eyes of the regulators. And one thing that it did was it had begun remediation measures based on its internal investigation while the government was doing its own investigation. Right, so we'll say that again. Albemarle discovered the incidents, did, was doing its own investigation, started remediating while it was still investigating, start, was still remediating while it told Justice Department, we have this issue. And then that is something that apparently the DOJ liked to see. They, they started remediating even before they understood exactly where This train was going to, and and funny enough, that is something that came up in discussion at the SCCE conference, not about Albemarle specifically, but there was one session about the importance of starting remediation even before your investigation is done, because some things you're going to have to fix, regardless of whatever conclusions you might find. And the panel was uniformly saying, yes, you should do that. And now we have this case that basically said kudos to Albemarle for doing that. And the other big remediation measure that jumped out to me was that uh, Albemarle transformed its whole business model to reduce corruption risk by implementing a new strategy where they eliminated sales agents throughout the whole company. So there are hundreds of these third-party sales reps who are a walking red flag under themselves. They eliminated all of that sort of structure, distributors, resellers, and whatnot. All of it went out the window and shifted to a direct sales business model which does cut down your corruption risk because there are no third parties you are just selling directly to the state owned company still have a lot of risk but you eliminated a level of it we can go on from there ultimately this was 118 million in fines and disgorgement it was 103 million in disgorgement and interest to the securities and exchange commission $98 million dollar criminal penalty, and then $16.6 million in other additional forfeiture, which I am not entirely clear on what that might entail. But that all totals up to 218 point something or other million dollars. So this is the biggest FCBA settlement I think we've seen in a while and maybe the whole year. But
3: that's the rough outline of the case. Tom.
1: Mr. Armstrong, do you have a question or comment for
3: Matt? Yeah, two quick comments. First of all, I've also had an investigation over the use of quotation marks. Simple message to learn is quotes cost cash. If you've got people in your organisation who put things in quotation marks, and a regulator or prosecutor finds those quotation marks, you're going to be asked to explain why it's in quotes. Really easy to do using software like Relativity to find stuff in quotation marks. Regulators want you to do that in some respects so it gives them something to beat you over the head with. And then I also agree as a general rule, I've, I know I've been banging on about this on these podcasts for, for years. Whenever you've got an investigation, you have to do the remediation work in parallel, even if it's not something that you think that authorities know about cure as you go and find the harm is critical. And we've seen much better regulatory outcomes when organizations have learned lessons quickly and tried to correct what went wrong.
2: Jonathan, that's just an excellent point It jars my memory that in the world of internal audit, this is not even a question, when you find a process that is riddled with ineffective controls. That's a mess and you have to clean it up. But the very first thing you do is you in. Uh, introduce compensating controls to at least keep things together while you're figuring out how to clean up the mess. That's all that this is. And there shouldn't be any additional question about it just because we're talking in compliance terms. In internal audit, they would all say, duh, of course you should do this. And they're right.
1: So, Matt, I have a question, two questions for you. Uh, Actually, I'm not sure I understand the discussion around self disclosure Did the company get credit for it somehow? They certainly didn't make a timely self-disclosure, and the DOJ pointed that out. So what are your thoughts around the entire discussion of self-disclosure?
2: I have to admit, I don't know off the top of my head, and I don't think I should, you know, just go diving into the details of the uh, DPA right now. I don't know if they got any credit for self-disclosure, but I do know that DOJ dinged them for this was not a prompt voluntary self disclosure it was voluntary self disclosure but you know the descriptions of it that uh, even deputy attorney general lisa monaco she mentioned at uh, the sce conference when she spoke there just the other day it is supposed to be timely voluntary self disclosure and sitting on something for 6 months 16 months is not timely and so i don't know how much that deducted from the voluntary part but they didn't like to see it and i think it just does go to show that i don't know if we have a hard and fast rule on voluntary and timely but if you look at the cognizant technologies case from a few years ago now which is held in high praise for how the board handled that if i remember correctly they disclosed this to the justice department within weeks not months weeks i think it was two weeks and if you're disclosing in two weeks clearly you have no idea where this is gonna go and how it's going to end, but you're still stepping up and admitting it now, that sends a signal that the Justice Department likes to see.
1: Matt, the second either comment or question I have is around the discount they received. And perhaps I'd just like to emphasize that under the new corporate enforcement policy that was announced in January, the company got a discount beyond the low range of the sentencing guidelines of 45% off the bottom range. And I just want everyone to understand that is a huge benefit because the sentencing guidelines, typically there will be hundreds of millions of dollars between the top and the bottom. So even at the middle is a discount off the top. But when you start at the bottom and you go 45% off that, that saved this company real money. And if we can suss out what exactly they did to save all that money, I think those would be some great lessons learned for compliance professionals who may find themselves in a similar situation down the road.
2: Well, Tom, I would just add that there are people out there who are basically coming out critics of the Justice Department saying that companies are getting off very lightly now. At this point, if you voluntarily self-disclose, cooperate, and remediate, you can pretty much get almost nothing and like and a new car. They are that desperate to avoid going to court and having to issue subpoenas in front of a grand jury. There are people up there who say that the Justice Department shouldn't be afraid to bare its teeth in case companies are being jerks or are sitting on things for too long. And uh, it's worth exploring in further podcasts some other time.
1: So we're going to move over to Christy Grant Hart. First of all, Christy, welcome, and thanks so much for uh, playing, excuse me, guest guest on this episode. I wanted to maybe ask you to focus on, we've heard a lot about clawbacks, and certainly starting in January, we didn't have clawbacks in this case, but we had the broader category of consequence management. Can you tell us what happened and how that played out and what might be the lessons learned?
0: This is, this is the first thing that we've seen that um, happens since the March 2023 compensation incentives and clawback pilot program began. So it's actually sad there weren't clawbacks because I was hoping to do that fancy math that comes from whether or not it was successful or if you tried really hard and then you get either 75% or 100% of however much it wasn't that. They actually got this uh, $763,453 specific penalty reduction um, because of those bonuses that they withheld. So they were withholding bonuses under two different circumstances during the investigation, obviously, and afterward. And that was if the uh, person involved, obviously, was an employee who may have been involved in misconduct But also they were keeping them uh, from anybody who had supervisory authority over those employees or who and who knew or should have known or were willfully blind, one of my favorite phrases in the FCPA world, uh, about the conduct or the misconduct or should have known about it. So I think that the pilot program has been really interesting to people. They wanted to see if it would be successful. Uh, Some of the commentary that I read was talking about if it had been available to Goldman Sachs and, and doing the math about how much that might have changed things in terms of clawbacks. So I think that the lesson here from the DOJ is really that if you're in one of these investigations, you're going to get a lot of internal pressure to say, not guilty until proven, When why are you withholding bonuses and this is ridiculous and on. But I think that this shows that the DOJ was impressed by that and that it is something to definitely consider if you're having one of these big investigations, that it it will get you credit and you should be doing it.
1: So the consequence part of this really drove, or I guess that's what I wanted to maybe drive home, that even if you can't claw back or you don't claw back, there are things you can do. And how can we use this case to broaden that discussion for compliance professionals that there's a variety of strategies you can use to make clear the consequence of legal violation of the FCPA by every level in an organization?
0: I I think that This case really shows that uh, there was so much benefit of the doubt given to the company after they did all of this remediation. I think that it's stick and carrot, right? They got a lot of credit for doing the withdrawal of bonuses and the investigation that was happening while they were doing so much remediation. I think if you're a compliance officer, one of the things you do is stress all of the levels of what they did in terms of shifting the model. I agree with you, Matt. I thought that was fascinating to make it much de-risked so that they... Took an entirely different way of approaching it. That they beefed up their compliance department. That they shifted these things. Tom, I really I wanted to bring in a separate angle from this. DOJ and SEC. We've had a lot of the SEC uh, doing all the, it seems to be doing the DOJ dirty work in FCPA all year long, right? We finally have this coordination. Do you think that this is the beginning of, are we going to get a lot more out of the DOJ? Is this their wake for it moment and this is the, the big fireworks? What do you think this says about the, the organizations, if any, with respect to FCPA enforcement?
1: So Karen is going to talk to us about the SEC angle, so I'm actually going to ask to hold that question for her before we get to that. But let me ask you, Christy, one more. Everyone on this podcast dissects these SEC enforcement actions, and we try to draw out multiple lessons that we can bring forward. Do, Do you think that this DOJ, the NPA, gives us some really new and not different What's new or shaded different lessons that we can bring. Picking up on Matt started, and you've also added to, which is there seems to be a lot of credit being given to the company. And can we legitimately take that message to our clients?
0: I think we can. I think that one of the things you always hear is you can't, you know, how you can't change a whole business model, right? We've been doing it this way forever. And I think this is maybe the most dramatic thing I've ever seen in terms of, no, we actually did entirely shift our business model. We stopped using these types of third parties, I think in terms of one of the more egregious facts was that the they were told, right? To come, I think it was with Indonesia, that the uh, third party said, hey, by the way, we're going to have to pay bribes in order to get this contract. You can't get much more specific than we're going to have to do this. And I think also we brought in the UAE and China, right? The SEC, I know, Karen, you're going to talk about this more, but China and the UAE were also part of this that weren't part of the DOJ's piece of it, which I thought was interesting in and of itself. And Karen, I'll be interested to see what you think about that. But I think that from a compliance perspective, they got so much credit that what you can do with this, it's quite a lengthy NBA, is to look at it and see, yes, you can shift the business models. Yes, we can beef up the compliance program. Yes, we can continue to withhold bonuses during investigations, that there are a number of things that you can use as a roadmap to be successful with these kind of investigations. if you are not under these kind of investigations saying, look, this is the big wallop at the end, why don't we do what they did to remediate to make sure that we never get in this kind of trouble and that if we do, we're successful in the outcome.
1: Karen, do you have a question for Christy?
4: Yeah, I do because I I so much sign on to your dramatic shift in business model. I think it's really admirable that they hopped on that and that's a pretty huge sea change for the organization. Um, Although you wanna try and explore why why did they put this model in place to begin with, which was very likely at the request of some of their state-owned contacts that probably didn't just request that they use an agent, but probably recommended, or actually did recommend in at least one case, who the agents are. Do you see this may be sending a message that sometimes you may have to forego that short-term profitable transaction in the interest of saying, if we can't do it, we're just not going to do it.
0: Absolutely. That When you look at the, the way that the facts are put together, they knew that they had outlandish commissions. There was one where the person that had been, I think, registered in China for three weeks or something like that. There was this, the switching out of one for another because they had such good relations good relationships air quotes jonathan with the with the government official right so it was very clear what was happening this wasn't hidden somewhere and nobody could find out about it so i think can is there the potential for proper use of third party intermediaries and sales agents in the world yes of course it's not an impossible model but when you have one that is as corrupt and as obviously corrupt as this model I think a sea change may be the only way to, to fix it and maybe inter- reintroducing it over time with a different model, but frankly, looking at the egregiousness of, we already know this is an outrageous commission. And of course, to Matt's point, when he talked about those internal audit findings, internal audit was blinking red lights. Hey, we see it, This is a problem. Everybody knows. But I think I was reading Michael Volkov's in, uh, analysis of this, and I think one of the things he said that I thought was brilliant was, look, the board audit committee should have have these audit findings, right? The audit committee has the audit findings that say, blinking red light, big problems, overly big commissions, things we can't control. And then at that point, the board has responsibility at some point here for not following up on those audit findings or at least continuing to ask those questions. So I think maybe Tom, one of your things, what do we do now? Following up on those audit recommendations and making sure that some of these things happen and are remediated from the highest level is really important and that's definitely
1: something we can learn here. Mr. Armstrong, do you have a question or comment for Christy?
3: Yeah, I was just going to say to uh, Karen and Christie's point, we often forget that bribed uh, the business that you obtain through bribery is often not that profitable. And there's a, ga- a great case study on Siemens, for example, where they analyze uh, the fact that obviously you're paying somebody a high commission. And then in a lot of bribery schemes, you don't get the business by bribing you get details of the best bid. Mm-hmm. So so you might have business that on its face isn't profitable and then you're paying somebody 10% to get it. So sometimes it's not business sense as well as not ethical sense.
1: Matt, do you have a question or comment?
2: Two, I'll keep them brief. But on the changing of the business model, one thing that stood out to me is that is a substantial change for a large company. And I don't know this for a fact, but I can't envision a scenario where that didn't happen without the direct blessing of the CEO and the board. That's a really disruptive thing to do. If that is how it happened at Albemarle, that shows that, yes, the top is now invested in making structural changes to clean this up. But then that brings us right back to, Christy, you were talking about Mike Volkov wouldn't the board have been seeing these internal audit reports six years ago saying this is a dumpster fire, we need to fix it. And they didn't fix it then, but they wind up having to fix it now. And so there's a certain dichotomy there that just underlines how messy this case was. And Tom, the other comment I wanted to make was, I think you had said, talking about the Justice Department giving credit out left and right, that we have only seen half of this Justice Department equation that They'll give out such generous terms to people who cooperate. In theory, we still have those bigger sticks. I'm still waiting for when we actually see a bigger stick get used, where a company does get prosecuted, does suffer an indictment and a guilty plea, something like that, that where A lot of what we're talking about, such as being untimely in your self-disclosure, that's going to have some real consequence. And so far, I I still don't see very much of that second half of of what we're talking about, bigger carrots and bigger sticks. I see the carrots, but I don't know that I see the sticks.
1: On that note, we want to introduce Karen Moore. Karen, first of all, welcome to Everything Compliance. Uh, What have you been thinking about regarding this enforcement action?
4: Thanks, Tom. And as a long-term fan of of this, I'm just, I'm really thrilled to be here. I feel a little bit like a groupie being asked to sing on stage. First, I want to preface the whole thing, because I think we should all give a lot of nods to Albemarle beyond this big sea change in their, their sales structure. They clearly implemented a lot of change to its compliance and internal controls before, during, and after this outcome. And we're talking about bad behavior five and 10 and even longer years ago. Credit to the Albemarle that is today, which I think has a pretty good compliance program and has really set themselves on the right path. So having said that, I really, if if we weren't talking about this today, I would be using this as my rant. I think they got off really lightly. I mean, to Matt's point, first of all, where's the prosecution of this and other... Um, cases when you read the facts here, and I encourage people to read the SEC um, order simply because it's an easier read uh, than, than the DOJ and it you know covers the same instances plus two bonus instances. They got this hefty discount, as you mentioned, Tom, off the bottom of the federal sentencing guidelines calculation. So they got a lot of credit, even though there was a late disclosure. They got a non-prosecution agreement, not even a deferred prosecution agreement. Some pretty light conditions there. The SEC settlement has no civil penalties at all, in theory, because they're deferring to the the criminal penalties, but those were on the light side. There was no individual accountability beyond the clawbacks. And we get that kind of double credit on the clawbacks, right? Because you don't have to pay the bonus and you also get credit for the clawback against your penalties. So every dollar is $2 saved there's no monitor imposed. So I, I don't understand on the facts presented that how they got off like this. I understand the, the cooperation and all the good work that they did before, during, and after, but th- this was when I read through the administrative of- Order, my first thought was you cannot make this stuff up. If we had created some of this as a hypothetical on the facts presented, we get pushback that it was an unrealistic hypothetical, that this is not the way companies operate. Just to give a little bit of flavor, the, the Vietnam um, case, which is, I think, illustrative of, of the others as well, they give the sales to a sales agent with no experience in Catalyst, which is the, the product in question. They'd only been registered to do business in Vietnam for three months. He brags about his contacts in writing, gets a larger than usual commission for the region, so that's recorded. And then, according to the SEC order, he provides Albemarle with sensitive non-public information about competitors. He provides them with advanced tender details, samples of competing product, information on competitor bids, and also, together with Albemarle, managed to get changes to the tender process that, that favored Albemarle's. Um, so it, it just made me think a uh, uh, um, few weeks ago, I was watching a, an American football game, Go Falcons. I, I like the un- rooting for the underdog. But there were like five flags that littered the field on one play because there were so many infractions by both sides. And that's what it. this felt like, reading this. And I teach a, a course, a so shout out to my Fordham Law School students. And this is a great hypothetical. It's like spot the issues. There are about 10 issues present here just on the basic facts that the SEC provides. Albemarle clearly must have understood where some of the excess money was going. They, they paid the higher than usual commission, which the agent then after a couple of years asked to double because he needed to, hear my quotes, Jonathan, secure orders, win the job and avoid losing the market. It's just, oh, nice baseball cap too. So it, it, they eventually granted him a 50% increase in the commission, but it had to have been clear where some of this money was going, how's that for a law exam hypothetical. I did see one bright spot in the order. There was the situation in India Where the subsidiary regional director actually warned the US based sales exec that he thought the company's indie agent would pay bribes. Apparently, there were threats to put the company on this holiday list, which would prevent it from bidding on certain contracts. So, the regional director warned the sales executive by email, expressed his concern that the indie agent would cause Albemarle to violate the FCPA. They provided so many easy documents in this investigation. So, yay, here at least the regional director obviously paid attention to his training and and the policy, although he didn't seem to have reported this through compliance, which might've been able to do something. So what did the the U.S. sales exec do? You think, okay, yeah, now I've been put on notice. Did he immediately terminate the Indian agent or take any steps to revise the arrangement? Of course not. He didn't. The U.S. sales execs not only ignored all that, but signed a backdated consulting agreement with the India agent calling for a 3% commission, which was noted was three times higher than the normal rate paid to the existing agent and then shortly thereafter they got taken off the holiday list and problem solved no no problem as Christy mentioned the the SEC finding goes beyond the findings of the DOJ into transactions in China and the UAE. And uh, frankly, I don't really understand why the DOJ, maybe the facts just weren't there, but the DOJ didn't include them, round them up in the criminal findings in the NDA. But the SEC, SEC, it's like the non-sexy twin brother of the DOJ when it comes to FCPA cases, because it's the whole Al Capone scenario. They're looking at books and records and internal controls, which is just frankly not as fun, but it's where so many people get caught up and there were so many, to Matt's flashing neon red flag point, there were so many red flags here. Just using China to illustrate, I just noted some of them down, the agent was recommended by an official at the state-owned customer, a senior official at the customer was described by Albemarle personnel as the uncle of the agent's principal. despite no familial connections being disclosed in the due diligence questionnaire. So at least due diligence was being done. Compliance due diligence also revealed that the agent had no website and it had only been registered to do business in the weeks before the engagement, which is something that crops up in other jurisdictions as well. And again, like with other jurisdictions, the commission rate um, was questioned as, high. And, and as the engagement continued, there were more red flags that were um, present, including um, sole source basis of the appointment and this incredibly high price that was charged to the detriment of the China state-owned enterprise, and then clearly to the benefit of Albemarle and their agent. And in this case, the SEC noted that there were no internal controls in place. And I guess that's why they included it and maybe didn't include it in the DOJ, because they really focused on all of these in india and the UAE, the fact that there were expenses that were being recorded as legitimate commissions, and also discounts um, on payments, adjustments to sales, expenses, etc. And let's remember that even though it's subsidiary transactions, they get rolled up and consolidated into the Albemarle U.S. publicly traded company financial statement. We've got all this, and I don't know how much time we have because there's so much to do here. And the the SEC, we've mentioned the, the audit reports, but the audit findings, that the SEC noted said that sales agents were paid despite incomplete due diligence, despite a lack of an executed contract, despite having a contract that lacked required anti-corruption provisions and at rates higher than those provided by contracts, you know, and so on and so on. And it, it's just extraordinary. And I wholly sign on to the where was the audit committee here because you've got deficiencies. They did address some of them, but they didn't track them. I've got many more comments we could probably do an album part two, but I think just the final comments I had was for compliance officers, what does that mean? And I think it's just a, a real, indication for us that sometimes we operate too much in our comfort zone, that kind of design and implementation of our program. And we don't take enough steps and broad enough steps on the effectiveness measures that we need to do. Are the right people getting the right training to spot the issues? Are messages about risk tolerance being sent in a credible way by senior leadership? How are deal reviews being conducted? Because here you had a pretty transparent um, insight into all of these deals. It wasn't thousands and thousands. <clears throat> of customers. They were a small number of customers with very high value deals. So how are those reveals, reviews being conducted? Are the audit deficiencies being tracked? Is risk scoring catching what it needs to to catch? Is the relationship between audit internal controls and compliance sufficient to, to get to where we need to go? Rich, very rich source of information and thoughts. And I feel like I don't need to draft any made-up hypotheticals for my law firm, my law school exams. I'm just going to take some of the Albemarle fact pattern and stick it in there and see what my students do with it.
1: Wow, that was great, Karen. But Christy, do you have a question or comment for Karen?
4: Yeah,
0: it's it's to Karen, but also everyone, where's the monitor? I don't understand. It used to be that there was the big fear that so many cases with much less egregious fact patterns ended up with two, three, four, five-year monitorships. This being a non-prosecution agreement, but also this seems like the classic case where you find a monitor. Anybody have thoughts about why this just didn't happen? And is there a credibility issue with that? Is there a credibility issue with not issuing a monitor in a case like this where it becomes less scary and just it's not gonna happen again?
2: Yes, it is. Everything you're saying, Christy, I agree 100%. This is the thing that I'm starting to hear and more and more often is that the Justice Department will go to great lengths to make sure they do not have to be nasty people writing subpoenas, hauling you in front of a grand jury. Instead, they will give you the moon and the stars and probably, like I said, a new car for the general counsel, so long as you just show up and go along.
0: You could have a monitorship as part of an NBA or a DPA, right? That could still be part of this whole thing. If they don't want to have to go through the whole public... Prosecution part and potentially have issues of do we have jurisdiction? Is this too far? All those kind of things that we see as the legal battles here, where there really are tenuous challenges. That imposing a monitor as part of an NPR DPA can just be part of that plea deal. And I'm surprised that this one in particular that wasn't part of it.
4: Yeah, I'm 100% with you, Christine. And it seems odd given the, that kind of statements earlier on in last year that there was going to be an increased use of monitors. This seems to run. Contrary, give them a you know light get let them off lightly on penalties, but track what they're doing. Maybe it's because there's such a distance between the last bad transactions and the resolution of the case. They felt that they'd done enough. I I don't know.
1: Let me try to explain that. And going in a different direction, in the new corporate enforcement policy, they listed about twenty, maybe ten, rather factors for monitorship. Number one, did they self-disclose? And the egregiousness of the conduct is not one of the factors after it's have they self disclosed it is did they put a new compliance policy in place and have they tested that and that seems to be it uh, now they didn't report in the npa whether those two factors were present but that's the test now and that seems to be where we're going but we are now going to move on to fan favorites shout outs and rants Mr. Kelly has a hard stop, so we're going to start with Matt, then go back across the pond to Jonathan, then over to Christy Karen, and I will bat number five today. Matt, what you got for us?
2: Yeah, I want to give a, uh, I suppose this qualifies as a rant to the now former Speaker of the U.S. House, Kevin McCarthy, (laughs) who was a terrible person, terrible politician, terrible leader of his party, and got exactly what he deserved uh when they deposed him in what was probably the stupidest cell phone i have ever seen in u.s politics which says a lot in this country uh but what mr mccarthy i think failed to ever see is that in some alternative universe when he became speaker uh at the beginning of the year that other kevin mccarthy took a more moderate and conciliatory approach did get some uh democrats to come over to his side from time to time could have pursued more moderate policies and pushed them through on a bipartisan basis which last time i checked is exactly what this country is calling for its politicians to do and in that parallel universe i bet that kevin mccarthy a still has his job and b is probably one of the most effective and popular politicians over there because we have no effective politicians who are not at all popular pretty much anywhere in this country right now but i just single singularly want to call out McCarthy that his fundamental problem is he only believes republicans should only negotiate with other republicans and that's how he was going to keep his job here in the real world there are people in this country and in congress who are not republicans and you can't just ignore them you can't think because they're not republicans they don't have some claim to participate in governance yes they do and he really should have fought much more smartly and strategically he could have outflanked this dimwit nutball, Matt Gates, who can't believe that Gates is the smart master strategist here who outfoxed him. That is a sad commentary. But ultimately, look, Kevin McCarthy sold his soul for power and now is surprised that he has wound up in hell. And I have zero sympathy
3: for somebody like that.
1: Mr. Armstrong, you've already culturally referenced, no sex please, we're British. I'm not sure where you can go from here.
3: Yeah, I don't think I can get as ranty as Matt today. I was going to uh, shout out to Courtney Nordrum. I was privileged to speak with her at SCCE yesterday. And I thought it was an incredibly brave thing to do, to talk about the ransomware attack that she handled on her corporation. She It was a warts and all account, including the uh, emotional issues involved with handling that type of attack and from my experience it's very rare i think i only know of one other corporation that's had a warts and all real-time discussion of the attack they faced and unless we discuss these things in public then we don't know how horrific they are and if we don't know how horrific they are then we don't prepare properly and if we don't prepare properly the bad guys win. So it was, a, in my view, I know I'm biased. We were fortunate to be on the team that helped minimize the, the parts of the attack that could be minimized. I know I'm biased in this, but I thought it was an incredibly brave presentation and one that was very much for the public good.
1: Christy, what do you have for us today?
0: Something not compliance related to rave about I recently began one of my friends linked to a video of something called don't be a lawyer. Has anyone seen this from my crazy ex girlfriend? It is a singing dancing reason to not be a lawyer, because it's a horrible life. And it's amazingly funny. It's got a full like dance cast and dance crews, And it is from my crazy ex girlfriend which is a program I didn't watch when it was out, but it turns out there's a musical number in every single episode. So I am living my musical theater best fantasy because it's that, and it takes place in the law firm. It is magic all over the place. See my crazy ex-girlfriend, and before you do that, please look for Don't Be a Lawyer from my crazy ex-girlfriend. You will laugh four days.
1: Well, Karen, you've had some time to repair What do you have for us?
4: Yes, I'm going to just maybe build on that theme, but maybe rant uh, a little bit on the law firm. I love being a lawyer, by the way. I think it's a great profession, has great opportunities, but sometimes it gets taken advantage of. So my my Grant is on big law partners charging upwards of $1,000 an hour for their advice, valuable as it is. Jonathan, you're worth any penny, anybody would be able to pay. But still, last spring, Reuters reported that in the Johnson & Johnson subsidiary Chapter 11 case. The U.S. trustee actually appealed to court asking the federal bankruptcy judge in New York to block LTL from retaining a Hogan and Lovell's partner, citing his absolutely egregious $2,465 an hour rate, significantly higher than already high rates in the seven other law firms already involved in the case, which range from Let's see, I think it's Skadden-Arps at 1100 an hour and or Carrington at 1750 And at the same time, at the beginning of this year, the median base salary for first-year associates, who are basically useless in big law firms, was $200,000 a year, according to the NALB 2023 Associate Salary Survey, up $35,000 from last year. And I guess that's at least good news for my nephew, Max, who's in his second year at Georgetown Law, and he's going to be able to support us all. I'm telling you, there's
0: a line in in that song that says, you can spend four years of your life helping one pharmaceutical company merge with another pharmaceutical company. Now, see, you're going to go look at it now, right? Because that's actually
1: There you go. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to have a dual shout-out. Major League Baseball playoffs are here. They have already started. We have already seen, uh, first of all, playoff baseball is absolutely great. We have already seen some fabulous plays. Carlos Correa made one of the great defensive plays I have ever seen. Uh, in the Twins game against the Blue Jays, Flatty Guerrero Jr. got picked off on second on an absolutely inane play. And of course, the world champion Houston Astros start their defense of their championship. So I'm going to be glued to playoff baseball at least as long as the Astros are in. And also I want to shout out to Dick Buckus. Dick Buckus died this week. He was the absolute prototype middle linebacker. In the 60s and early 70s, he completely revolutionized the position. He was about, to, uh, in all the NFL, if there could be a meanest, he was it. So I don't know what you're doing in heaven, Dick Butkus, but I'm sure you're looking for somebody to hit. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, this has been an absolutely great Everything Compliance. I hope we can get the gang back together. And thanks for all our guests who commented. So till next time, guys, thank you.
2: Thanks, Tom. Thank you, thank you Tom.
1: This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the award-winning Everything Compliance. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will subscribe, rate, and review this episode wherever great podcasts are listened to. I've linked to all of the topics we touched upon in this episode in the show notes. So if you'd like additional information, I would urge you to check out uh, the reports, articles, and press releases regarding the topics from today's podcast. The gang will be back in a couple of weeks with another episode, so I hope you'll plan to join us again. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. The Compliance Podcast Network recently won five communicator awards, so I hope you'll check out some of the award-winning podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, including Data-Driven Compliance, The Coming Conflict with China, Never the Same, How Business Changed Forever, from the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the night sky to eclipses coming to Kerrville, Texas. This is Tom Fox. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again.
3: This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.